Welcome to the Quantum Growth Podcast, empowering financial advisors to build practices for the 21st century by providing insights and interviews on leadership, strategy, and practice management. Now here are your co-hosts, Shenandoah Connor and Barron's Hall of Fame top advisor, Jonathan Cutton. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Quantum Growth for Financial Advisors podcast. I am your host, Shenandoah Connor, and back with me this week from a sunny vacation in Florida is my co-host, the infamous Jonathan Cutton. Say hi, John. Infamous. I like that. That sounds quite good. Um, Yes. Can't say I am happy to be back from Florida, but uh, I am back here in cold, snowy, freezing snowy, melty, snow, dirty, uh, Long Island, New York. But with that being said, it was really good to get away uh, for sure. So I am super excited to have a very good personal friend of mine uh, and business colleague for, I'm embarrassed to say, probably over 15 or 20 years at this point, um, uh, Mr. Tony Whitbeck, who I'm really excited to have on the show. Uh, Tony is a 31-year, yep, you heard it right, he is old, 31-year veteran of the financial services industry and uh, has pretty much worn every hat you could possibly uh, wear. So with that being said, Tony, thanks for being our guest today and, you know, maybe you could say hello to the audience and be great if you could just kind of talk about what the heck you've done for 31 years. Yeah, awesome, John. Thank you so much for the invitation to be on your show today. And uh, if you count uh, my time in college as an intern, it's been 34 years. And so um, I'm only 55, though, so I'm not as old as you might think I am. Um, But I've, you know, over the years, of course, started as an advisor, and then I held uh, numerous leadership positions within a large uh, independent broker dealer. Um, I've really been an industry consultant since uh, 2005, I would say. And uh, I have two business partners, uh, Nick and Steve, and, and they started uh, our company under a different brand in, in 2005. And uh, their focus was on coaching and practice management. And then I joined the firm in 2010 to help them grow the business and then expand the services that we offer, which is why we really started Advisor Legacy in 2013. So we rebranded all of our MA services and offered them under our advisor legacy brand. So within that company, we do business valuations, uh, deal support, continuity plans, uh, legal agreements, lending support, and both buy, sell, and, and uh, buy and sell side support. So it's really a full service uh, M&A firm. And that's uh, what I've been doing for the last uh, 31 and a half years. So you've been a little busy, huh? I, you know what, funny, Tony, we know each other obviously quite well, but. I didn't know that uh, that your partners actually founded the company, so that's uh, that's interesting information uh, for sure. So, you know, could you tell us a little bit more about you know specifically one of the things that um, you know Shenandoah and I have been focusing a lot on? And I think our audience has been quite interested in is really more of the work that you do at Advisor Legacy, right? And uh, you know, specifically around the practice acquisition space and the value of practices and and things along those lines. And I know you do a lot of work there and would love to hear a little bit more about kind of how you guys operate. Sure. Um, Maybe what I'll do is I'll start with um, valuations because it really is a core part of what we do. And 
so many advisors really need to have uh, evaluation and have evaluation on an ongoing basis. Um, there, there's a lot of reasons to do evaluation other than just sell your practice, right? So um, we believe it's important that uh, advisors get regular evaluations to help manage the equity or really chart the progress that they're, they're making in their business so they can determine are the things that they're doing actually having a positive impact uh, on their business. Uh, another reason to have evaluation is uh, you want to have it done before you put together a buy-sell agreement. You got to figure out, you know, what would your buyer pay for the business um, if something were to happen, a triggering event. Um, some people are looking to divide their practice, maybe they've been partners for some time, but it's just not working out. So they got to determine that value so they can divide the practice. Um, Others get it because they're buying a practice and sometimes they're getting bank financing. We do valuations for the banks that provide the lending uh, in this space. And I would say that probably 90% of the deals that we do uh, are going to be bank financed. And then, of course, uh, every advisor should have uh, at least a continuity plan, if not a succession plan. Uh, and those are different, right? A continuity plan is for death and disability and a succession plan is really for retirement. And so oftentimes uh, you should have, not oftentimes, you should always have evaluation done when putting together a continuity or a succession plan. So um, if, we, if we just talk about valuations, there's, there's many, many reasons why an advisor should do an ongoing valuation or before a pending event that's gonna happen. No, absolutely. And that was something that, um, so I've been working with you for the last couple of years as well. And uh, that kind of was new to me and enlightening to me is that valuation being a tool for advisors, not just like when they're doing a, a buy sell or that traditional where you're trying to figure out how much to value something because you're putting it on the market, but to be able to use it as a business planning tool as well. And how most advisors really don't understand what an actual true business valuation is, what it entails, what you're looking at, the factors that go into that valuation and in terms of determining what a value of a practice is. So can you talk about what some of those factors are that you look at when you're determining a practice value? Sure, um, and before I do that, you know, probably the most common question we get is, um, you know, what are the multiples these days for practices? Uh, if, if I don't hear that at least once a day, um, I must not have been on the phone talking to somebody. Uh, because it's a very common question. And the reality is the multiples are just an outcome of the valuation, right? So you can just divide something by something else and get a multiple. So you really shouldn't use multiples as the, the measurement for determining the value of a practice. So there's lots of other things that uh, we look at when doing evaluation. Um, in fact, we did a regression analysis to determine what are the top three things that drive practice values up and what are the top three things that drive practice values down. So um, the top three for driving value up is the percentage of recurring revenue. That's the highest correlated uh, element that determines practice value. The second is the operating profit, which if you think about it, if you can maintain a high profit margin and then you do a discounted cash flow analysis, if you have a higher profit margin, you're going to have a higher value. And then the third is going to be the client segmentation or the percentage of high value clients in the practice. So a practice that has high recurring revenue, high profit margins, and a high percentage of their clients that are high value clients 
they're going to have a likely a higher value than another practice. The three things that drive practice value down, number one is client segmentation, the percentage of low value clients that you have in your practice. Number two is client age. And if you think about it, I mean, our industry is aging. We as professionals are aging and so is our client base. And many of these client bases are getting pretty darn old. Um, and then the last one to drive down valuation is the number of professionals. And you know, you, you would think that the bigger you get, the more economies of scale you have, but we have found that that is not true. Um, you may make more money, um, but your profit margin is harder to maintain when you get really big and you start hiring multiple uh, high expense professionals to serve the clients that either you already have or that you're acquiring. So basically, if you want to drive your practice value down, keep a bunch of junk clients, uh, make sure you don't add any new ones because your clients are getting older and hire a bunch of people to, to serve those low value clients. That's how you drive your practice value down. Well, I don't want to do that. But that's, that's good information. I think I'm doing some of those things, though. So I don't know if that's so good. Um, so, you know, what's interesting, I think the from my perspective, maybe we drill down a little bit, the things that drive practice value higher, um, you know, honestly, are pretty, I, I kind of expected those, right? So recurring revenue drives practice value, that makes sense. Profit margin, right? And then higher net worth clients, I think is what you're saying, right, from a client segmentation uh, perspective. And then that which is driving lower value are, are older clients from a client uh, segmentation perspective, smaller clients, right? And then the number of professionals. We drill down a little bit more on the, um, you know, kind of how you think about the number of professional piece. That's, that's interesting uh, to me. So, um, Maybe you could just drill down on that a little bit. Like where, where does that start to hurt the values because it hits the profit margin or because, you know, there's so many moving pieces for someone else to actually lead and manage. Yeah. So you're typically your highest cost in running a practice is going to be your labor. And so, you know, the more labor you hire to serve the clients, the more expensive it gets, the more your profit margin shrinks. So if you have a bunch of low value clients and you think that the strategy should be, well, let me go hire somebody to serve those clients so it frees up my time and I can go you know, serve my high value clients. Well, in essence, and, and this is a mistake we see all the time. Um, in essence, what you're doing is you're, you know, you're, you're acquiring a high expense employee to serve low value clients that frankly, you don't want to serve. You've been banging your head against the wall and they're not generating much revenue. And so now you're setting up your new employee to fail as well, serving these low value clients that they bang their head against the wall. And so the, the amount of cost that you have associated with serving those low value clients, uh, it just doesn't offset you know, the, the, the advantages. So you know, sometimes it works, but you generally speaking, if you're going to hire some professionals, you want them to be able to bring in uh, new revenue, new assets, new clients, um, and serve or add value to your higher value clients in your organization versus spending the time with the low value clients. So we see that mistake all the time, people going out and hiring an associate advisor to come in and serve the bottom end of their client base. 
Yeah, no, super, super smart. Makes a lot of sense as you, uh, as you kind of break it down like that. So I do appreciate that. So it sounds like Tony, it's kind of like, um, you know, what I call that kind of simple, eloquent practice, right? Where um, less clients, less bodies, um, more assets, more efficiency, and therefore uh, profitability is what fetches the most out in the marketplace. Is that pretty accurate? I think that's true, John. And, you know, I think that um, if you think about these boutique practices that I call, you know, where you have an advisor that maybe has a hundred clients with a hundred million under management and they have a full-time support person. Um, that's a very attractive practice for someone to want to buy and people will pay a premium for that. Um, it's not to say that building a large scale practice is not a good idea, but it is more complicated and it is certainly more work. I mean, you've built a huge practice and you know the, the intricacies and the, the, the hard work it takes to manage a, a, a business of that size. And at some point too, you do start to limit the number of buyers that you have uh, for your practice, more so in the independent space than you do in the RIA space. I mean, there's, there's a lot more uh, big RIA roll-up firms that can, that can purchase those bigger uh, practices. But in the independent space, sometimes you can uh, get so big that it's hard to find uh, buyers. But I think it's really important for an advisor to make a decision um, and be very conscious of their decision as to whether or not they want to build more of a boutique type of practice or whether they want to build more of an enterprise. Um, because you have to do it consciously and, and all your decisions then should be based upon what your end goal is going to be. No, it makes a ton of sense. And I think, uh, I think you're spot on. I think a lot of advisors just kind of go, you know, they just, there's not necessarily a destination plan at the end right, to maximize their, you know, their equity value and therefore their monetization and their just growth at all costs, right, is a, is a good thing. And I think you're right. If you're thinking about that end in mind, um, these seems to be the, the smart kind of leading indicators, right, that will ultimately uh, determine price when you are ready to ultimately sell. So I think that's great. What are you seeing out there, Tony? I mean, are you seeing, I, I know you, you kind of talked about the, the multiple issue before, right, a little bit. It seems like, um, you know, and it's just interesting because you usually hear about advisors thinking about practice valuation, um, what their practice is worth as a multiple of gross revenue. Um, and it sounds like, I think what I'm hearing you say uh, is it's more of a multiple maybe, uh, I think that's probably taken into account, but more of like an EBITDA uh, or an EBOC, right? Uh, you know, earnings before owner compensation. Maybe you could just talk to that a little bit and just kind of where you see, you know, with that being said, like, where are the valuations going? Are they higher than they were a year or two ago, lower? Where do you see that playing out? Yeah, sure. That, you know, practice values have continued to go up. Um, and right now, practices are probably at all time highs. And I, uh, I can explain a little bit why here in a minute. But, um you know, what we see, I mean, I'll, so I'll answer the question since you asked it. So this is the, you know, the one time a day I get to hear what multiples are. And so thank you for giving me that opportunity. Uh, my, I'm glad I'm predictable, at least. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if you look at on average, and average is a dangerous word because there isn't an average practice, but on average, um, multiples are running at about 2.7 times recurring revenue plus one times non-recurring revenue. 
Now revenue is after the haircut, okay? So 2.7 times recurring revenue, one times non-recurring revenue. Another metric you can use would be about 2.1 times gross revenue. And so, you know, obviously a payout rate makes a difference. Now, when we do evaluation, John, we look at um, using two different methods. One is just the market value method, which is where we're going to apply what we believe are the proper multiples to the revenues based upon the metrics in the practice. Things like the number of high value clients, the number of low value clients, the client age, the cash flow, the growth rate, those kind of things. So they're going to get a certain uh, multiple applied to the practice. And then the second um, methodology that we use is going to be a discounted cash flow approach. And that's what you're referring to more of the, uh, the EBITDAC. And so what we do is we do two different valuations, one based on uh, market value, which would be kind of like comps in the housing market. And then uh, we do a discounted cash flow method, and then we average the two. And so sometimes the net cash flow method is going to be higher than the multiples. And sometimes it's going to be the other way around. Um, it all depends on some of the things we talked about, you know, so if you have this really high expense ratio, you know, your, your net cash flow methodology might be fairly low because there's hardly any profit, but yet if you use the multiples approach, it might be higher. So we, we feel like if we use both approaches and we average the two, we come up with a pretty reasonable uh, value for the practice. Interesting. It's, really thorough uh and you're kind of looking at all the angles there which is pretty cool i didn't know it was uh quite so detailed which is definitely uh, a good thing yeah and that's one of the things that i learned too is just when you think about um because i'm coming in from the lending space so i've worked and been involved with the valuations and been seeing some of the other companies and how they do valuations and they are taking a very simple approach Whereas you're actually looking at it, how other industries look at things as just what's the overall health and integrity of the practice from a true business perspective, looking at all business items. Um, and, and in those lines, kind of, you know, you, you talk about profitability and, and advisors aren't always good at managing expenses, but also about the, the client segmentation and the client age, because that is something where a lot of times um, either they've focus on their really core client group, but they forget about generational planning because they don't want to take on those low value clients just yet. But then there's, if you're thinking about recurring revenue and maintaining assets, that's something that's really in, in, you know, incredibly important. So I've, I've heard you talk about this and that was something else that really kind of piqued my interest was just the kind of managing and maintaining those assets under management as you're aging, as your clients are aging and you know how, how can advisors do that and still be profitable and, and making sure that they're managing clients. Um, yeah, great. it's a great question. Um, you know, we've been chasing after the, the high value clients for a long time, right? Or at least in the last 10 years, we've been chasing after that client that's, you know, between a half a million and $5 million worth of assets. And, you know, that's, that's ideal, but you do have to build that second generation in your client base if you're planning on being in business for a while. So we did... Um, another regression analysis, and we looked at um, when a practice will start to decline in value. So we, we actually looked at uh, about 50,000 households, uh, in other words, clients, and looked at the attributes of those clients in terms of when are, when are they accumulating money, when are they distributing money, and when, when are they going to start taking out more than they're putting in. And it shouldn't be a surprise, but it's around 70 years old. 
when they start to take more out than what they're putting in. So in our business valuation, we built a tool that will predict when your practice will start to decline in value if you don't grow uh, based on the information that we received from our regression analysis. And then we also can show you if you grow at, let's say a 10% rate, when will your practice uh, begin to decline in value or will just continue to grow. And it's pretty eye-opening. And I would say that there's a fair number of practices that are already starting to decline in value or in the next few years, they're gonna to start to decline in value. And it's primarily because their clients are getting old. So since we've been chasing after this, you know, this market of 500,000 to 5 million, most of those people are older. Um, we have to start thinking about getting the next generation, meaning those clients, kids, and being okay with having some smaller accounts, uh, maybe charging appropriately for financial planning. I always tell people that if they don't have any money, then you have to charge them a higher financial planning fee to get paid for your time. Um, if they have a lot of money to manage, then you don't necessarily have to charge as high as a, as a planning fee. So you, you, there's ways to make a younger, uh, non-high asset value client profitable if you just charge properly. So um, I think it's important if, if an advisor wants to, to, to grow the value of their practice, they are going to have to start bringing in that second generation. Yeah, I love it, Tony. Um, I've got cuttingitis going on right now, 32 questions popping around my brain. So I will, I will try not to hit you with too many at once. Um, but there's a couple of things that I heard. I'll, I'll hit you with two. I, I know you're a smart dude, so I can give you at least two at a time and you'll remember them. Uh, so number one, you know, Shenandoah about six minutes ago jogged my memory and talking about her kind of coming from the, you know, kind of like the, uh, the lending space, right, a bit. So we've got um, obviously extremely low interest rates currently, right? Although potentially rising. And we've got, you know, uh, politics aside, what, what will likely look to be uh, rising income tax scenario, specifically from a cap gains perspective. Um, how does that, in your opinion, um, you know, kind of affect things? By the way, that's one question. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know what, let, let's do that. We'll start with the one, just start, start there. I'll, I'll keep my other one and I'll give it to you in a minute. Yeah, John. So really I'm going to answer that question in kind of a roundabout way, because I, I, I think one of the things that I'm seeing right now is a shift from a, uh, seller's market towards a buyer's market. We're not e even close to that yet, but we're seeing a lot more people express interest in selling their practice in the last 12 months. I'm guessing COVID has a little bit to do with that. Um, but there really are, in my mind, five really good reasons for an advisor who's looking to sell their practice in the next couple of years to do it right now. And you touched on two of them. So when you think about it, the market is at an all-time high right now. And as I mentioned earlier, if you have a high percentage of your revenue, recurring revenue, that's gone up because it's a percentage of the market value. So you have really high prices for practices right now. 
The second thing is you still have a lot of buyers out there. Um, you know, you always hear the 50 to one. I don't know if that's true or not, but you know, when we post a practice for sale, we get a lot of interest. So there's still a lot of buyers. The third thing that you just mentioned is interest rates are at all time lows. And I had said earlier that 90% of these acquisitions are generally financed. So buyers have more purchasing power because they can uh, pay more for a practice and still have relatively low payments because the interest rates are uh, so low. But there's, there's two other things that um, will cause an advisor or should cause an advisor to consider selling now if they're close to the age of wanting to retire. And that's that, you know, compliance and technology is not getting any easier. And a lot of the older clients or the older advisors don't want to adapt to the paperless world and presenting on iPads and having to do all the compliance requirements. So I think that's going to chase some of the older advisors out. And then finally, because I mentioned earlier that client age is so important and that most of our advisors have clients that are similar to them in age, that we have a lot of older clients or client bases are, are, are getting older. So it's, in my mind, kind of the perfect storm for someone who wants to sell. Uh, your practice is at an all-time high. There's still a lot of buyers. The buyers get low interest rates to pay a premium on the practice. You can stop worrying about technology and compliance and then let someone else worry about your older clients. No, it makes, makes a ton of sense. And thanks for sharing that it's logical, like you are always logical, uh, which, is, which is good. And I think you know, what's interesting, I'm just going to point this out, is just as I'm listening to you talk, Tony, um, it's clear to me, and I wonder if it's quite as clear uh, to advisors out there who might be, um, you know, at that retirement age, we'll call it, or for that matter, you know, I think there's a trend that people are retiring from our business a lot earlier um, than normal retirement age because of all the factors you, you just mentioned a minute ago. Um, but it seems like, like if you step back for a little bit and you almost, you know, become your own financial advisor, which, you know, kind of the shoemaker's kid story, right? Um, and you actually look at all the facts, it's quite compelling that when you look at just economics in general, right? What you earn today, what you could sell your business for today, where the markets are, all of the pieces that you just described, that if you actually took a spreadsheet out to that and you're at a point where you could be where clients are starting to spend assets down and die and some of the things that you just talked about, um, it could actually cost you more money to work another five years um, or 10 years than it could be to just exit today and maybe take on a whole nother role, even if you want to continue to work in this industry or in some other industry that doesn't necessarily involve working with the client base that you have today. Is that, I mean, as, as you're talking, um, you know, again, I've never probably sat and thought about it quite that way, but it seems like that's sort of the thesis here is if you actually look in, you might be working for free. It's almost sort of babble here, guys, but I'm on a roll. It's almost like, you know, sometimes school teachers with their great pensions, that it, it actually costs them more to go to work um, than it does to actually retire and collect their pension, um, you know, when, when you really think about it. Is that, Tony, something that you're seeing? Yeah, that is the, um, I guess, the myth of 
the idea of continuing to work and sell later. You know, so let's say you make a half a million in, in revenue and we use our two times revenue. So you make a, a million bucks. So someone will say, well, why don't I just work three more years, make a million five, then sell it for a million bucks. Well, for starters, you still have to work. And that's the part that everybody forgets is that you still have to work. And um, the other thing that we see, John, is, is like you said, the cobbler's kid has no shoes, is that if someone hasn't done a business valuation to even know what their probably largest asset is worth, I mean, that's almost malpractice. And you know, a lot of financial advisors don't even have their own financial plan. So if you don't have a financial plan for yourself and know what your business is worth as an asset that's gonna produce retirement income for you, then you're, you're really not doing yourself uh, good service. And you, know, you can actually project what the value your practice would be worth if you decide to work for three or four more years and then figure out what your net income is gonna be and uh, determine if you have enough in your financial plan to make retirement a reality and then make your decisions off of those facts. Uh, but the simple math of just saying, well, if I work three more years and then sell it, you know, why wouldn't I do that? Just doesn't work. And plus, damn, I'm tired too. And I don't want to keep working. No, it's smart. It's uh, like I said, it just, as you're talking, I'm just kind of thinking about it and I got to redo everything, buddy. I don't know. I might, I might be cashing out myself soon who knows but uh all right he's teasing teasing but um it it does it makes a lot of sense and you know i'd be remiss if i didn't ask you uh this question is um and i don't know that you have an exact percentage or anything like that so maybe just in a roundabout way as you speak with advisors like any any data on what percentage of advisors in the industry actually have a succession plan in place and i know you talked a little bit about succession from a buy-sell perspective and you know, some of the other kind of planning components that an advisor uh, should have in place. So I wanted to hit you with that question, just to add a little color on it. Um, I'm having conversations right now. I'm in, in the midst of two different conversations with advisors um, who have cancer and are looking to, to succeed their business because they're, you know, their health and, and et cetera. And they neither had anything in place, right? And luckily, they were able to, you know, remain healthy enough uh, to still be able to sell their business. But I highly doubt that the value that they'll be able to get if they can't properly transition the client and, uh, you know, and had a, a plan in place up front um, will be as strong as it would have could have been otherwise. Yeah, so we, we do reference a study that's been done, and the study basically states for those advisors that are within five years of retirement, 59% um, of them do not know who their buyer is going to be. And so these are within five years of retirement, so they don't have a succession plan, and they probably don't even have a continuity plan. 30% roughly said it's going to be someone within their practice. And then the remaining 11% is, you know, outside or miscellaneous things. So people are very unprepared. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're coming into retirement within five years and they don't know what their practice is worth. They don't have a succession plan. They don't have a continuity plan. I mean, you know, so many advisors, you know, tell their clients, make sure you get life insurance, disability insurance, and, you know, protect yourself from those triggering events, but yet they don't have a continuity plan for death and disability on their own practice. And, 
and you really need to, everyone needs to have a, a continuity plan. And I think the number is somewhere around 30% of advisors have a continuity plan and 70% don't. Um, and so that, that, that's just, that's a silliness. There's no reason why. Um, and, and there's plenty of people out there that would like to be your continuity partner and would be happy to, to play the role of the successor if a triggering event were to occur. It's crazy. 30% um, have it is what you're saying. And yeah. uh, folks within five years of retirement, about 40% roughly, right? Don't, uh, about 40% have it, 60% don't. Uh, know who their buyer is going to be. So is it like going to the dentist, Tony? Is that the problem? Does it hurt a lot to get these things in place? Is it a million dollars a year to get it done? Like maybe you can just talk about for the advisors listening in who might not have some of this stuff done. Um, you know, I, I, maybe you could just paint a picture of how time consuming is it to actually put these plans in place? And, you know, is it uber expensive to do so? And things along those lines, because it, 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 you know, Advisors are smart enough for sure, right, to know they need it and understand the value of their business. I think we're all just so darn busy running around uh, that maybe we don't know what it actually entails and uh, how simple it is. Yeah, it, it's a, a little less painful than going to the dentist. And um, I think it's a matter of time, number one, of people just making the time to do it. Uh, and then two, maybe not knowing how to do it, what the next steps are. So we've developed our turnkey continuity plan um, and we charge $2,500 for it. So it's not that expensive. It comes with a business valuation and an hour of consulting regarding that business valuation. And then um, the legal agreement between you and your continuity partner. And that's customized by a law firm that we use. So um, not only do you get the valuation, an hour of our time, you get the legal agreement, an hour of the law firm's time for customization, you know, all for 2,500 bucks. And, you know, we can have the whole thing done within uh, a few weeks, depending upon if the advisor gets us the information in a timely manner. So it's pretty painless and we call it turnkey for a reason. We try to streamline that process. Um, so really there's no excuse for someone to not have a continuity plan. No, absolutely. And I think kind of along those lines with the continuity plan and some of what I've been hearing you guys talking about too, and for advisors just to consider is, is one, be prepared. I mean, we've seen with COVID advisors as young as in their forties pass away um, and things happen. So don't think that it's an age related thing. You, you should just have it. It's just good business practice, but advisors also have a lot more options than they used to. It's not work, 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 and then you're out. Um, I know we've got a lot of sell and stay that's been really popular and we've been seeing um, that there's several different ways that you can go about transitioning get that liquidity event and maintain that value of your practice. Um, get the reward for building that asset, but maybe not retire. I know we haven't really talked about that too much here, but but really, I mean, advisors have options. And the more that you're planning and thinking ahead and aware of what your value is of your practice, the better decisions that you can make about what you're doing and what, at what time. When are you either doing a sell and stay? When are you doing a partial sell, segmenting out your client? Like all of those things, just the more that you have a clear picture of what's going on you can make plans and it should be just part of regular business practice, not just when you hit 60 that you start thinking about these things. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I think the sell and stay is becoming more popular, although from a buying perspective, it's sometimes hard to justify what that advisor wants to stay. And, you know, I, I talked about the number of professionals 
And the more you have, the more expensive it is and what that can do to your profit margin. So from a buyer's perspective, the sell and stay isn't always a great idea um, unless the um, seller is going to stay and be the only advisor, uh, meaning that someone is going to take the equity off the, or the chips off the table, sell the equity and stay and serve the client base for a reduced payout rate. Um, that works as long as the buyer doesn't need to bring in more resources, you know, to support that person. Um, so, th you know, that that's popular. What, what gets a little expensive is when it, uh, someone buys the practice and then, you know, the seller only wants to work two days a week and make the same amount of money uh, that they were making before. So, you know, that's uh, sell and stay part-time to get paid in full. And so that doesn't work so well for the buyer. You must be talking to the same sellers I talk to, huh, Tony? <laughs> there's, there's some unreasonable people out there in this world, for sure. Um, you know, so... You know, I mean, they're only working three days now, but they want to go down to two. That's <laughs> yes, two days, uh, overpay me for the equity of my business and pay me double what I earned before. That seems, uh, yeah. seems kind of like a fair thing. Um, well, I, I think we hit pretty good and maybe on to... Uh, you know, a uh, brighter subject than, you know, advisors dying and, and all that. And I, I think that's part of it just to kind of put a bow on it. Uh, it's like a client. No one wants to think about it, right? Because you're, we're never, we're all invincible and it's never going to happen. And, uh, you know, and if, you know, God forbid you plan for it and you actually have a valuation done, a succession plan and uh, emergency plans in place, et cetera, uh, it doesn't make it any more likely for it to happen, by the way, right? So I think it's, uh, uh, I get why it's not occurring, but it's really um, concerning, you know, that many advisors or, you know, it sounds like 60% plus of them have done nothing, which is, is not a great thing. Yeah. Um, so and I would really hope that COVID would have waken uh, people up a little bit because we had someone who about a year and a half ago purchased our turnkey continuity plan. Uh, and he's 57 years old and died of COVID. You know, so it, it isn't just for people who are older. And so it kind of amazes me that given the pandemic that we're still in, that more people haven't, uh, you know, taken advantage of getting a continuity plan. I noticed what you did there too, Tony. You, you mentioned earlier that you were 55 and then you talked about someone who was 57 not being old. I like that. That, yeah. was, that, was, that was slick, no yeah. doubt about it. So... Let me ask this. I'm going to kind of go back a little bit in the conversation. Um, when I was going to hit with two questions at once, I, I never got back to the second question. So let's go back to, I'm an advisor, right, today, listening in, and I like what Tony Whitbeck is saying, right? And I'm going, hey, I, I want to be wise, right, about how I build my business so that I am building it in a way to maximize the equity value so when I exit, uh, it's a good exit. Um, I'll just ask it open-ended. Like, what do I do, right? Do I do partial sales to reduce the size of the business if I don't have the right client segmentation? Um, do I really focus on organic net flows through that next generation um, planning? Like, if you, as a kind of expert in this field, were to look at it, you know, what would you advise an advisor to do that doesn't have the ideal practice that's maximized their value to actually put some simple steps in place so that, you know, over a two, three, four year period, their business could be kind of fetching the highest price tag possible? 
Sure. Well, and you hit on a couple of those things, John. So, you know, clearly you know how to grow a business. And so, you know, if someone wants to improve their practice for eventual sale, um, they, in the simplest sense, they have to grow. And a lot of practices are dying. They're not growing. And so then the question becomes, well, how do you grow? And um, if you're talking about organic growth, then you really need to get much better at marketing and bringing in new clients. And you need to get better at bringing in new net flows, um, or, or I should say net flows, bringing in more revenue uh, and assets. The other thing that you can do is increase the percentage of your revenue that's going to be recurring versus transactional. So I, I know it's easy to go get the, the 5% upfront commission and it feels good, you know, but the 1% over, over time is going to be better for you for cash flow and it's going to be better for your practice value uh, in the long run because, you know, you're, you're getting one times your transactional revenue and, and 2.7 times your recurring revenue. So it doesn't take long for the recurring revenue to um, really benefit the value of the practice compared to transactional. The other thing that I would consider doing is, is maybe a partial sale, selling off the bottom end of your client base instead of hiring someone to uh, service that group. As I mentioned earlier, it's so expensive to bring on uh, someone who's talented, that's licensed, and you may be giving them you know, a, a client group that produces 150,000 in revenue. You're better off just selling those clients, reducing all the activities that go around servicing those clients than you are to hire someone to, to serve those. The other thing you can do is, is really manage your expenses. You know, so I mean, when you do a cash flow or discounted cash flow analysis, it's going to be based upon you know your net income. So, managing your expenses wisely will help um, drive up the value. And then finally, I would say um, hire smart and fire quick. And I, I think people jump at hires um, too quickly. They don't really take the time and do a thorough process to hire the right person for their practice. And it can take a good three, four, five months to find the right person uh, for the practice. And that's gonna pay spades going forward uh, because they're gonna provide that client service, which is gonna lead to client retention, which is gonna lead to referrals, which is gonna lead to more assets and, and growth. But if you happen to hire the wrong person, fire them quickly because it really becomes a cancer in your organization. You get frustrated, the clients get frustrated, um, so that's what I'd say, John, is add new clients, bring in new assets for flows, migrate your assets into managed accounts uh, or recurring revenue versus taking the quick fix, um, sell off your bottom end clients, manage your expenses and be real smart on your hires. Well said. Um, my brain's going again. So I'll just hit you with one quick, right? So would you say, Tony, that... Um, is there really a market for the bottom end of buckets uh, of books of business? Like, you know, are advisors out there willing to buy, you know, call it the bottom 30, 40, 50% of another advisor's book? You see a market for that? Well, unfortunately there is. I mean, I say unfortunately in the sense that, you know, I think it's probably an uneducated buyer that's buying the, the bottom end of that client base. But, but there are people that basically they want to build, they'll build a call center, right? So they'll have 2000, clients and they'll have this call center that will try to serve the clients. And then they say, well, sooner or later, someone's going to die or sooner or later, you know, I'm going to get this life insurance or sooner or later, I'm going to get this rollover. 
And then they try to manage, you know, these two, 3,000 clients by hiring expensive people, um, you know, to serve those. So there are some models that, you know, people have built that allow, that, allow it to work. It's just not a model that I would uh, want to sign up for. Yeah, no, well, well said, and I agree. And I couldn't agree more with what you had said before. And I've learned this kind of the hard way over the years and uh, still aren't great at it to be transparent, but is to hire slow, right? And to, to fire quick. I think that's, you know, that's really something that advisors struggle with uh, a little bit, myself included at times, for sure. Um, so you know, the last piece that I just wanted to, you know, kind of drill down on, I guess, a little bit is, you know, when you think about, um, you know, an advisor today, and we're kind of walking through, uh, you know, how they can maximize, you know, the value of their business and kind of what that looks like, you know, how do taxes really play in, right? And that's, that's something I think a lot of advisors on both sides of the equation, right? Acquirers of practice don't always kind of think about how, the acquisition affects their taxes, right? Because they're usually, you know, the seller wants cap gains treatment, goodwill, the buyer is willing to do that in many cases because, you know, they need to in order to get the transaction done. And then the flip side of that is if I'm someone thinking about selling my business, I don't think everyone always thinks about um, kind of how, how the cap gain treatment uh, differentiates from ordinary income and continuing to, Kind of earn compensation from the business. Sure, um, and, and you asked a question, or you, you made a statement about uh, capital gains going up. I guess that would be a, a sixth sixth reason why, if you're looking to sell, you might want to consider doing it now. Um, I don't know if they can sneak in the capital gains tax rate by the end of the year. Uh, hopefully, they don't ever do it, but there's a good probability to pay for all of the. Uh, COVID infrastructure that they're going to have to start raising some taxes. So, um, but regarding the, the taxation of the sale, um, typically what we see, John, is about 85% of the sales price is allocated towards goodwill. And what that means is that the seller is going to pay capital gains on that. So the majority of the sales capital gains treatment to the seller and then the buyer has to depreciate that over 15 years. And this is sometimes a surprise for buyers because they're getting taxed on revenue they're not really receiving, you know, based on, on having to depreciate over 15 years. Usually we allocate about 13% to a consulting agreement. And that's so that the uh, time that is spent by the seller transitioning the clients over to the buyer um, they're getting a portion of the sale price allocated towards that part of their job in, in transitioning the client. And then 2% is allocated towards a, a non-solicit, non-compete. Um, it, it's hard enough to, to make those hold. And if there's no value attributed to it, it's even harder. So we like to allocate about 2% to the, um, the non-compete, non-solicit. So roughly, 85% uh, is going to be cap gains uh, and 15% is going to be ordinary income to the seller. And then on the buyer side, 85% uh, is depreciated over 15 years and the 15% is written off uh, as an expense because it's ordinary income to the seller. Nope, makes sense. And, um, you know, I, I, I hit you with that one, Tony, and then we'll, I think we'll kind of run a little uh, short on time here. So uh, I could talk about this forever, by the way. I love talking about 
succession and, and uh, find it super intriguing. Um, but you know, one of the things that I could just share, Tony, and in being involved in a lot of transactions over the years is you need someone to actually guide you through it, right? Taxes, as an example, is one that I constantly see, and I've made the mistake myself when I first started acquiring businesses that people just don't understand, to your point, you know, kind of the consequences and how that all ties in, uh, you know, on an overall basis. So I wanted to tee that one up. I think if, if, if you're an advisor listening in, thinking about buying, selling, um, there's a lot to know. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll dare to ask Mr. Whitbeck, how many transactions have you been involved in? Uh, one one way or another, evaluations over the years. Yeah, I mean it's 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 been many. I don't even know what the number is, John. I mean we we do three to four hundred valuations a year, uh, sell a lot of practices every year, and you're spot spot on about getting some help because there's so many things that can go wrong, and there's so many things that you don't know you don't know, um, and it, it, very often you know I'll ask the question. When someone says they're they're selling their practice, I'll just simply say, "Well, how did they allocate the taxes?" And they get this blank look on their face, like, "What are you talking about?" You know, so I mean, that's just one thing to think about. So because of that, we developed two services. One is our turnkey deal support, and it's when a buyer and a seller have found each other. And basically, we'll do evaluation, we'll do all the negotiations and structure of the deal, like the tax allocation, like the attrition clause, uh, like the consulting period. And we'll do all of the legal agreements and then help design the transition plan um, for the clients. So we charge uh, 10 grand for that service. And, you know, it's well worth it. You'll make sure you, we'll make sure you don't make any mistakes. And then for the person who doesn't know who is going to buy their practice, we have a whole platform called Advisor Legacy Sales. We represent the seller. We create a profile about their business. We post it for sale on our platform. We have about 1,400 qualified buyers on our platform. Um, we ask those who express interest in the practice to place a bid. Then we do all the interviewing and uh, help the buyer get the financing. And we do all the legal agreements. So it's really a white glove, hands-on approach, you know, from start to finish to give that seller the support that they need. Because as you know, John, you've bought multiple businesses and, you know, you know how to do that, but a seller typically only sells one business in their lifetime. And they're the ones that really need the most guidance and to avoid the landmines and the pitfalls. So we do an awful lot of seller representation um, and because we have a lot of serial buyers that um, are well-educated and, and, and know how to buy a practice. Yeah, what I, what I can share and then Shen, I'll send it to you to kind of wrap up here, but a um, couple of things. First and foremost, um, Tony, thank you, uh, you know, for being our guest. Uh, pearls of wisdom as usual. Uh, so we greatly appreciate it. And I, I could just share, um, I have used Tony's firm uh, multiple, multiple times and um, they're awesome. So, you know, for those of you thinking about valuation, succession planning, uh, anything related. Um, I think what's really cool about the way Tony built this business uh, is they actually do every single facet of anything you could think about as it relates to succession, uh, contingency plans, buying, selling businesses, um, maximizing the value. I mean, they've really thought through a menu of services that they can handle just about anything as it relates to those subjects. So 
congrats on your success, young man. Thank you for being <laughs> the guest here today. Uh, and I don't know if you have any final thoughts, Tony, that you wanted to share. And I know Shenandoah, you're going to talk about where, where our guests can find Tony and, uh, and his firm. Yeah, John, I just wanted to thank you for the opportunity. I thoroughly enjoyed this today. Um, I've enjoyed working with you over the years and, and it's been uh, fulfilling for us to help you with a lot of your acquisitions uh, over the years. So um, thanks for being a client and thanks for having me on today's podcast. You got it, buddy. I appreciate all the support as well. To yeah, you, Shenandoah. Absolutely. And for our listeners, um, if you're not already aware of Advisor Legacy, they do have and put out a lot of education as well about buying and selling practices, using valuations, understanding how valuations work. So they've got a lot of white papers and blog posts and webinars, like they're constantly putting education out there. Um, so Tony, tell them where they can find all that information and, and be able to get those assets. Yeah, it's, just, it's quite simple. Go to our website at www.advisorlegacy.com and there you'll see all the services that we offer. Um, you can request a complimentary consultation. You can actually order our valuation online and uh, all the, many of the other services. Um, I actually want to extend uh, a value to you for being a listener today on today's podcast. So I'd like to give you a coupon for $100 off our valuation services. And that coupon code is SAVE100, all one word, S-A-V-E 100. And when you go online to place an order, it's going to ask you for a coupon code. And if you put that in there, you'll save 100 bucks uh, for being on uh, today's podcast. Excellent. Well, I'll make sure to put that link and the code into our show notes. So if you're driving while you're listening to this and weren't able to get it down, you can, uh, when you get to the office or get back home, grab that coupon code and get your valuation. I do know that the valuations also come with an hour long consultation where they'll actually give you recommendations as well of, you know, John kind of touched on how to grow your practice. What do I do next? they'll actually tell you exactly what to do specific to your practice. So it is a really good value, um, whether you're growing your practice, whether you're working on a succession plan or, or whatnot. So all of that will be in the show notes. Thank you once again, everyone for joining us. And we look forward to seeing you next week on another great episode. Bye everyone. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find the episode show notes and subscribe for updates by visiting cuttonconsultinggroup.com forward slash podcast. Make sure to subscribe and download the episodes on your favorite podcast app, and we'll see you next week.